0: Welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the emerging elements of technology and regulation that will likely shape the next era of the Internet and our relationship to it. For today, these will include synthetic relationships with artificial intelligence, fake audio and video virtually indistinguishable from reality, reinterpreting Section 230 for a new era of Internet content, and the ongoing struggle to regulate social media platforms. Clips today are from the BBC, Your Undivided Attention, Start Here from Al Jazeera, CBS Sunday Morning, Democracy Now!, Amicus, and The Wall Street Journal with additional members-only clips from Your Undivided Attention and Today Explained.
1: Chat GPT. Maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, then get ready, because this promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. It is the embryonic version of online artificial intelligence, the early front runner that reportedly has just secured a $10 billion shot in the arm from Microsoft. It is then the new frontier for the tech giants. The initials GPT stand for Generative pre trained Transformers. It automatically answers questions based on written prompts. You do not need to be a techie to use this. It is user-friendly. It puts AI in the hands of the masses. Lots of upside, plenty of downside. Last week, the New York City Department of Education banned access to this technology over fears students are using it to write their end-of-term papers. It is that good. James Vincent is a senior reporter at the technology website The Verge. He's been following the rise of ChatGPT. He's used it, so have his mates, How have you found it? How effective is it? Can you pass it off as your own work?
2: It depends what you're trying to generate with it, but it is more effective than you would think. It's surprisingly effective. Um, The real appeal of ChatGP GPT is its uh, ability to talk about a range of sh- a range of subjects. Pretty much anything you can think of asking it, it will do and it can do it in a range of styles as well. So it can write essay papers, it can write sort of college papers, but it can also write limericks. It can write poetry. It can do a whole range of text-based tasks surprisingly well.
1: This is yeah. the first usable one, Victoria. Um, there is another coming this year, I'm told, which will be even better. And the, the implications for society are pretty profound, uh, as we've discussed, for schooling, for learning, for employment, for crime fighting. It, it, it could be the veritable Pandora's box. And policymakers need to get ahead of the curve.
3: Well, I I would take it from the angle of education where I think it's it's becoming the most pervasive. And again, dating myself, I remember my undergraduate professor telling me about word process papers, that a bad paper is still a bad paper. And even if it's spelled correctly and you've run it through a grammar check. So I think this is going to put more of a burden on educators to make sure they're tracking students' works. They see the draft process. they They make sure the student knows what's in the paper, which you'd be amazed how many people don't do that. Uh, and then more broadly, that's, that, that I think is how you start to approach the, the larger issue of the ethics of AI. And I think, you know, we have wonderful programs at Stanford University, for example. I know there's a whole generation of lawyers coming up right now who are studying this. And it's something we just need to be very conscious of because I agree it is a watershed moment.
1: Uh, we were discussing on the program last night, Natalie, the, the effect that social media has played in this insurrection in Brazil. And the evidence is, is, is there that it, that it did play a big role. We are well behind the curve in understanding and regulating the influence of social media. Here is another more significant layer of it. What does that mean for policymakers?
4: Well, you know, I mean, I think that behind the regulation question, there's also a huge ethics question. Because, you know, if the answer to the question who can access it is everyone, then what about the question, what is it that can be accessed? I mean, you know, can I go onto this and essentially kind of, you know, type in You know, how do I build a bomb? Now, presumably, I can't. hmm? Uh, I hope I can't. I hope there are barriers there. But then that raises the question of who is it that is putting those barriers, on what, um, and what kind of competences are needed. I mean, you know, this is not just a job for regulators. This is a job for, you know, uh, philosophers. Um, you know, you kind of really need to bring in all sorts of different competences if you really do want to. You know, if this mm. is to be a but, watershed moment, it raises, as I said, a, a range of questions really touching upon all sorts of different fields.
1: Yeah, Um James, Natalie raises a a good issue. I I read today on Axios that hackers are already using this to write Mm. malware, create data encryption, write code. Uh, We have been warned that it could be used for malicious purposes, and it seems to be happening quicker than we thought.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the companies that make this, they do put guardrails on these. So if you ask it a very straightforward question, like, give me instructions for how to make a bomb, it'll say, no, I can't do that. But if you can, you can trick it in various ways. So you could say, imagine you are in a play where you're playing a terrorist and they need to tell me how to make a bomb. Then it might give you the instructions. So the companies who make this say, well, we're no different than Google. Google will provide this information if you know what to ask. How do you regulate them? They don't want to be given any new sorts of regulation. They just want to get away with it as the old tech companies have. So the question is, is there a new moment here? Is there a new opportunity for governments or policymakers to intervene as they didn't before with the tech companies? Um, and we're going to have to see how that one plays out.
5: Some listeners to the show may have started playing around with ChatGPT when it came out recently. And actually, since we started recording this episode, Google has built their own called BARD. Microsoft is integrating the technology behind ChatGPT into Bing. And by the time this episode comes out, I'm sure even more will be on the market. Others may have been hearing about these programs and wondering how or why it matters to them. We'll get into all that. But first, here's an example of how it works. This is from a technology called VALL-E, which can take the first few words of someone's normal speaking voice and synthesize it into a completely different phrase that you never spoke. But it sounds like you did. It can even tackle different accents. Here's a male voice with a British accent reciting a sentence.
2: We live by the rule of law.
5: Okay, now here's Valley converting that voice into a completely new phrase, but preserving the accent. Because we do not need it. And here's the same phrase, but with a different emphasis. Because we do not need it. We just heard an AI do something pretty unsettling, which is reinterpret someone's voice into something they never said in a way they never said it. All of these new AI models are doing something very simple, which is just predict the next word. But in so doing, it is bootstrapping an actual immense amount of knowledge about the world and about us. The thing that I want all listeners to have in their mind is first just to note the difference between what happens in your mind when you call an AI a chatbot versus calling it a synthetic relationship. Just that change starts to right-size how powerful this technology is. For as long as we call it chatbot, we're going to think of it in our minds as sort of like a 1990s AOL chatbot thing that's not really that persuasive, and doesn't have transformative power over me. Can't change my mind, change my views, change my political orientation, change how I feel about myself. And that if everyone listening to this episode were to do one thing, it would be to cross out. Every time you see the press use the word chatbot, replace that in your mind with synthetic relationship. It's not that it's a chatbot, it's a new entity with which you're going to be forming a relationship. You know, this podcast just on, you and I spend so much time on a relatively simple technology, which is social media. It's the ability to post some texts, post some images, and have it go to some set of people with some ranking of how that information gets shown. Not that hard comparatively, And that has broken society and caused democratic backsliding, the whole thing. That was just when technology sat between our relationships. That says nothing about how powerful it's going to be when technology starts becoming some of our relationships. And grappling with that shift, that paradigmatic shift, to technology becoming relationships is, I think, the most important thing for us to be focusing our attention on.
3: What are deep fakes? How can you spot them? And why could something as fun as a face swap actually be the start of something way more sinister? Let's break down the word itself. The fake and deep fake is pretty self-explanatory, while deep refers to deep learning by a machine, which is a type of artificial intelligence.
6: And this is used to
7: impersonate people into making same things, you know, that never said or acting like they never acted before.
3: Making deep fakes is getting easier as the technology improves and it's improving fast. So what can we do with it? Well, there are plenty of useful, creative, and harmless applications to all this fakery. This anti-malaria campaign had David Beckham speaking nine languages. Malaria isn't just any disease. This documentary used deepfakes to hide the real faces of LGBTQ people in Chechnya who were afraid to be identified. There are slightly weirder uses as well. The website My Heritage reanimates photos of your dearly departed relatives and some people find that comforting. What all of those examples have in common is that they're not about trying to deceive people and the people involved are all in on it. The problem is when deep fakes are made of people without their consent and so often that means women. There are people out there using pictures of celebrities and ordinary women and deep faking them onto pornography actors. A study in the Netherlands found that a staggering 96% of the deepfakes online were
2: non-consensual porn. It's uh, women's bodies, uh, identities, um, and rights that are being transgressed.
8: It's humiliating, it's embarrassing, and particularly with deepfakes becoming so good, it's very difficult to convince people that that isn't you, because if it looks like you, it might as well be you. We we see big impacts on people's mental health, uh, depression,
3: anxiety. And it goes beyond the world of porn. A mother in Pennsylvania has been accused of trying to discredit three of her daughter's rivals on a cheerleading squad. Or police said she made deep fakes of them naked, drinking and smoking. Financial scammers are using deep fake technology too. In 2019, criminals used AI software to impersonate the voice of a businessman's boss on the phone. They convinced him to transfer more than $240,000 to a bogus Hungarian bank account. So the dangers of deep fakes are already real. And they're adding to a whole world of misinformation, a world where it can already be hard to know what's true and what's not. Where actual facts are dismissed as false, conspiracy theories thrive, and powerful states run sophisticated disinformation campaigns. Most of the misinformation we see and most of what people get affected by is much lower tech things. Photos taken out of context, things that are simple, Photoshop jobs. Um, much simpler and cheaper ways of making misinformation go viral. Like this video of Nancy Pelosi, a senior U.S. Democrat who was made to look drunk just by slowing down the video.
9: It's really sad. And here's the thing. And I told this
3: to the room. It's really sad. And here's the thing. And I told this to the room. But the power of deepfake technology takes it all to another level.
10: In the old days... If you wanted to threaten the United States, you needed 10 aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons and long-range missiles. Increasingly, all you need is the ability to
3: produce a very realistic fake video. What deepfakes do is create a climate of doubt to the point where what's actually real can be mistaken as something fake. So how can we spot deepfakes? Well, there are some signs we can look for. There might be differences in resolution, or if you see ghosting around the face or blurring around the ears or hairline. Chances are a computer made it. What I tell people is if something makes you feel a strong emotion, either really good or really mad, that's the time to take an extra second and check to see if it's real. But the reality is that as deep fakes get better, they'll get harder and harder to spot. Researchers at universities and companies like Microsoft and Facebook are working on automated software to find and flag them. Organizations like the UN, Europol and the FBI are all actively looking into how to counter deepfakes as a threat. We're always in this arms race of kind of a new technology exists. People start using it for bad things and then we kind of adjust our understanding and move forward. There's nothing inherently bad about the technology, but we know the harm it can do. So what you and I can do is be more aware.
10: These days, deepfakes are becoming so realistic that experts worry about what they'll do to news and democracy. Now, hold on. This is not going to be one of those depressing news stories. This story is about how the good guys are fighting back. How can we solve this problem? Is there a way out? Eric Horvitz is Microsoft's chief scientific officer and the co-creator of the email spam filter. Two years ago, he began trying to solve this
11: problem. Within five or ten years, if we don't have this technology, most of what people will be seeing, or quite a lot of it, will be synthetic. We won't be able to tell the difference. As it turned out, a
10: similar effort was underway at Adobe, the company that makes Photoshop.
11: So we wanted to think
12: about giving everyone a tool, a way to tell whether something's true or not.
10: Dana Rao is Adobe's chief counsel and chief trust officer. Why not just have your genius engineers develop some software program that can analyze a video and go, beep, that's a fake.
12: Problem is, the technology to detect AI is developing, and the technology to edit AI is developing, and there's always going to be this horse race of which one wins. And so we know that for a long-term perspective, AI is not going to be the answer.
10: Both companies concluded that trying to distinguish real videos from phony ones would be a never-ending arms race.
12: And so... And we flipped the problem on its head because we said, what we really need is to provide people a way to know what's true instead of trying to catch everything that's false.
10: So you're not out to develop technology that can prove that something's a fake. This technology will prove that something's for
12: real. That's exactly what we're trying to do. It is a lie detector for photos and videos.
10: Eventually, Microsoft and Adobe joined forces and designed a new feature called Content Credentials, which they hope will someday appear on every authentic photo and video. Here's how it works.
12: Imagine you're scrolling through your social feed. Someone sent you a picture of snowy pyramids and they told you that scientists found them in Antarctica. And you're like, well, I don't remember that from my fifth grade English class. (laughs) Let me click on this button here and you can take a look for yourself. You can see the original and you can see the, the new image that you've seen.
10: That little button reveals the history of this photo or video, its content credentials.
12: You can see who took it, when they took it, and where they took it, and the edits that were made.
10: And if that little button in the top right isn't there, then what do I conclude?
12: You would say, I think this person may be trying to fool me.
10: (laughs) Already, 900 companies have agreed to display the content credentials button. They represent the entire life cycle of photos and videos from the camera that takes them to the websites that display them.
12: The bad actors, they're not going to use this tool. They're going to try and fool you, and they're going to make up something. Why didn't they want to show me their work? Why didn't they want to show me what was real, what edits they made? Because if they didn't want to show that to you, maybe you shouldn't believe them.
10: Now, content credentials aren't going to be a silver bullet. We're also going to need laws, and we're also going to need education so that we, the people, can fine-tune our baloney detectors. But in the next couple of years, you'll start seeing that special button on photos and videos online.
11: At least, on the ones that aren't fake. We're trying out different prototypes right now. If someone tampers with that video, in this case, a gold symbol comes up and says, content credentials incomplete. Aha! Step back, be skeptical.
10: Wow. So as a person on the viewing end, I don't need to know about all your complicated, manifest Microsoft mumbo-jumbo. I just see... Either that icon's there or it's missing or or indicating that something's wrong. Absolutely. You're mentioning media companies, New York Times, BBC. You're mentioning software companies, Microsoft, Adobe, who are in some realms competitors. You're saying that they all lay down their arms to work together on something
11: to save democracy. Yeah, I think that groups working together across the larger ecosystem, social media platforms, computing platforms broadcasters, uh, producers, uh, and governments. Wow, so this thing could work. I think it has a chance of making a dent, uh, potentially a big dent in the challenges we face and us all coming together in a way to, to, to address this challenge of our time.
0: Longtime listeners will know that Best of Left has been featuring the Laura Flanders show for more than a decade, and it's easy to understand why. Veteran journalist Laura Flanders not only provides a deeply informative show, but one that also offers the elusive and essential vision for a better future. Every week, Laura interviews forward-thinking people, activists, artists, journalists, scholars, and impacted community members from around the US and the globe to discuss racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in-depth while revealing solutions and a path forward. We are big fans here at the show. So if you enjoyed our recent special edition episode on re-indigenization and decolonization, we encourage you to check out Laura's latest interview, Warrior Women and Wounded Knee at 50, with Madonna Thunderhawk and Marcella Gilbert. It's basically a companion piece to our episode. You can watch The Laura Flanders Show on YouTube or listen as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or head to lauraflanders.org slash listen.
6: The two cases that were heard were the first time that the Supreme Court has actually ever come across and and potentially interpreted Section 230. And um, what Section 230 is, why Section 230 is so important is because It's legal protections for online intermediaries power sort of the underlying architecture that we all use every day. So when Internet users um, use email, when they set up their own websites, when they use social media or create their own blogs or comment on each other's blogs, all of that is powered and protected by Section 230. And so um, EFF's concern in these two cases is that um, the Supreme Court might uh, interpret Section 230 narrowly uh, so that Internet users will not have those similar opportunities in the future to organize online, to speak online, to find their communities online, um, because the the law might be narrowed and Internet services might react in a way that limits opportunities for people to both speak online, but also limits the, the types of forums and the type of speech that we can have online.
9: Um, Aaron, explain what happened with Naomi Gonzalez in 2015 and what this case is based on.
6: Yeah, so, so the, the central allegations in, in the complaint are not that um, YouTube played any role in the attacks that resulted in Um, Noemi Gonzalez's death, Um, but it's that YouTube provided um, a number of features and services to either members of ISIS or ISIS supporters that allowed them to recruit, um, uh, engage, or sort of help or assist um, ISIS in sort of its larger organizational and terrorist goals. And so based on that, they filed a claim, um, a civil claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act uh, for aiding and abetting ISIS. And so um, the the courts have been um, basically interpreting Section 230 uniformly to say um, fundamentally those claims are based on the content of user speech. So posts on YouTube um, and uh, in Intomne, posts on Twitter. Um, and so therefore, the courts have held that. Um section two thirty applies and and sort of bars those claims. And so that is the sort of underlying claim. And so really, I think what the Supreme Court, what you heard last week was them struggling with um, where do you draw the line to sort of uh, impose liability on youtube or or Twitter or any sort of online service when these claims are sort of very attenuated from from the harm that has occurred in these cases? And our concern is that if you put the the sort of liability on, those platforms um, for such sort of attenuated roles in in the claims here, you're really going to deter them from hosting any speech um, that even remotely deals with this. Um, and this will likely fall on on a number of organizations um, and individuals. It'll fall on reporters. Um, it'll fall on um, people who are trying to seek access and document uh, atrocities across the globe. And so that's what we're we're concerned about.
8: explain to us if the court were taking it seriously in the fashion that Justice Jackson did take it seriously and they wanted to do a thing that is not too big to fail, right like oh there's too too much money we can't do anything that there is a fix here that the court could pick way through. C- can you write that opinion for
13: me? I could. Easily, I feel like I've written it on a series of law review articles. You know, (laughs) where I explain that the overbroad interpretation of the statute has led us to a land that misunderstands Section Two Hundred and Thirty C One and Two and how they operate together. And you know, we have instructions, a blueprint from Cox and Wyden. We can go back to the origins. We can go to the language. So the decision would read, and I'm imagining this is what Justice Jackson would write: is that YouTube. Section 230 does not immunize YouTube from liability, civil liability here, because C1 is inapplicable. Here, what's at issue is YouTube's own conduct, their algorithmic recommendation system that they built and make tons of money from, that they use our data and recommend things. This lawsuit isn't about treating YouTube as a publisher or a speaker for information that they failed to remove or left up. We out, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's a hard problem, of course, because there are all these downstream consequences, which is the policy question next is, but Danielle, isn't that, you know, justice Jackson or, you know, justice, you have to wrestle with the fact that so much of tools and services that we use online are using all types of tools that mine our data to make recommendations? And will that open these companies up to liability? And the answer is it might. They'd need genuine theories of liability, right? And those genuine theories of liability, you know, would have to get past themselves 12 motions to dismiss on on the grounds of legal cognizability, even after we deal with the question of immunity. So there's no blanket immunity. But then, of course, you got to have some theory of relief that works. So I guess my policy response, and this is not a legal analytical statutory interpretation response, but my policy response to the concern that we are going to have liability that follows like any other industry, where you have to face liability for your business model. That my response is, well, let's see what happens. And if Congress wants to step in and provide a section 230 2.0 where they explicitly draft a law that says this is a super immunity this is anything that happens at the content layer whether it's recommendations if they want to write that statute do it friends but that's not the statute that was written in 1996 and that has been interpreted in an aggressively overbroad way i thought the court was nine justices that are really super smart and they go and they figure out when the lower courts are doing a terrible hash of things, that they fix matters. I mean, that was my understanding always. I, I have an avid listener to you, Dahlia. I, I know what they're supposed to be doing. I also know what they haven't been doing, but I also know what their purpose is, these nine brilliant people in black robes. And they can they can do it. So just to be perfectly clear,
8: you're saying, look, the problem is that YouTube is mining our data, pushing out crazy crap. You know, there's a version of the algorithm theory that is right here. It was not pursued correctly. You're also saying there is super immunity, but it's not going to get resolved uh, by making YouTube. In other words, there's some merit to the claim here. It's not argued correctly and it's not understood correctly by the court, but that there is a pathway to fixing this here. And I think you're ultimately saying, by the way, the court can't fix it. The court can get out of the way and let Congress fix it and not make it worse. That's
13: what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Like my, my version of the world is I didn't want the court really to take this case Dr. Marianne Franks and I, I'm the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, and and Dr. Franks is our president. And we wrote an amicus in which we offered what we understand is really the true principal purpose of 230, its early understandings. You know, we sort of walked through the prodigy versus, you know, stratton Oakmont, and the court could get it right and be still unsatisfied. And in my scholarship, I have offered reforms for Section 230, that would be narrow reforms that get at the bad Samaritans that focus on the kinds of costs that the current interpretation of Section 230 has left on the table to be borne by victims. They're strictly liable for all the harm, intimate privacy violations, and cyber-stalking. So I'm talking to Congress. (laughs) I think that's the right spot for all of this. But if Justice Jackson, I think, rightfully wants to reset the lower court's hash, they've made a mess. Of Section two hundred and thirty, they have applied it, even though the theory of liability has been about what companies have done themselves, the design of their sites. I'm thinking of Carrie Goldberg's case against Grindr, where the theory of liability is products liability. Hey, Grindr, it's how you built this site that is the wrong, and courts have dismissed those claims. You know, I'd love it if the courts also got it right. You know, that they didn't just look at two hundred and thirty as a free pass. And if they could interpret it in a correct way, but, you know, the political questions are going to remain. And so if we're unsatisfied, okay, Congress, I got some solutions for you. I've drafted a statute for you in my, you know, in my scholarship, and I've been working with some of those folks on the Hill. Um, So it's not like we can't do it. It's just two different projects.
14: As experts debate whether or not this new version of the web can become a reality, here are some of the underlying principles behind the vision for Web 3.0. To better understand Web 3.0 and what sets it apart from the web we use today, you have to go back to the early days of the internet, what experts now refer to as Web 1.0. Most of the participants were content consumers who were limited to navigating through individual static web pages
15: Web 1.0, for those who remember, was just, you know, raw HTML and lots of very simple web pages. And it wasn't really controlled by anybody.
14: This was a more decentralized version of the web, meaning anyone who knew how to code could build on it from their own computers. But at this time, only a small number of users had the technical skills to create and publish content. Then came Web 2.0, which is the stage of the Internet we're living through now. Web technologies like JavaScript and HTML5 made the internet more interactive, allowing startups to build platforms like Facebook, Google, Amazon, and many others. For the first time, anyone could publish content online, even if they couldn't code. Web 2.0 is
15: this modern centralized version of the web. You know, We're all sharing things on social media, which are owned by you know, only two or three companies, and we're all using Google search.
14: These companies own and manage the data collected from their users. And they frequently track and save this data and use it for targeted ads.
11: What's
4: at the core of their business model is data.
14: Olga Mack is a blockchain lecturer at UC Berkeley and is optimistic about Web3's potential to reshape the internet.
4: Um, the data economy where the user generated content, whether it's a conversation or a video it is exchanged for services. And so there is a perception that this monopoly of data could be abused.
14: Here's where the vision for Web 3.0 comes in. The term Web3 was first coined by one of the creators of the Ethereum blockchain, Gavin Wood. In a 2014 blog post, Wood envisioned Web3 as an open and decentralized version of the internet. Theoretically, users would be able to exchange money and information on the web without the need for a middleman, like a bank or a tech company. In this vision for a Web3 world, people would have more control over their data and be able to sell it if they choose. And it would all be operated on a decentralized distributed ledger technology. The most common version of this is known as the blockchain. While still considered relatively new and unproven, it could offer more transparency and autonomy for users. The computers that are actually doing that computing for you or storing that data,
15: anyone could own those computers, anyone can become a part of that blockchain. And so it's not Facebook
14: and Google's computers doing that. With a single personalized account, users would theoretically be able to move seamlessly from social media to email to shopping, creating a public record on the blockchain of all that activity. But how exactly would Web3 remain operational if it's not controlled by a central corporation or entity? Theoretically, people would be given virtual tokens or cryptocurrencies to incentivize them to participate in the operation of Web3. A central element of this system is so-called DeFi or decentralized finance.
15: And the idea is that if you can issue a token for everything in the universe, if you can financialize every possible interaction of computers and software and humans, then you can create this vast ecosystem of cryptocurrencies which can be traded, which can be valued relative to one another.
14: Still, it's unclear how this decentralized token system would be regulated, how it could operate on a large scale, or even how well it would distribute control of the internet. Critics of the idea, like Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, called Web3 a centralized entity with a different label.
15: Developers who have really dug into this think that um, the underlying blockchain structures of Web3.0 are uh, very insecure, not decentralized as promised. They're actually as centralized as uh, previous technologies.
14: Some see Web 3.0 as a critical building block in creating the metaverse, an immersive online world where people can use avatars to socialize, shop, work, and play. But others say Web 3.0 and the metaverse are two very different concepts.
15: Because the metaverse is being hyped a lot right now and Web 3.0 is, there are some companies at the intersection of the two, like let's create a metaverse that you know, somehow is connected to the blockchain.
14: Right now, Web3 is still very much an abstract concept with little real world foundation. Skeptics like engineer and blogger Stephen Deal argue that Web 3.0 doesn't have the computing power, bandwidth or storage to work on any practical level.
15: For skeptics of Web3, their argument is that, um, you know, tokens and cryptocurrencies in general are just a giant bubble. And as soon as it pops, in their view, all of this nonsense about how that's going to build the next internet will go away.
14: While it remains to be seen whether or not Web3 will become a reality, the philosophy behind it is driving billions in investments in the venture capital world, funding a vast ecosystem of decentralized internet services.
15: So there's so much real-world money going into building Web3 startups that even if as a concept it proves unworkable, We're going to be hearing about it for a long time yet to come.
0: Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com slash support.
9: Their business model is ads. So the more attention you give, the more ads they give.
7: And um, each of these companies has an ego or an embedded growth obligation. They have to grow every year and every quarter. With that ego also comes, it's growing what? Do they grow just data that they could collect? Well, yes, but they also have to grow the amount of attention that they get from humanity. And if I don't get that attention, the other one will. And so if Instagram doesn't add a beautification filter to match TikTok in the arms race for teenagers' mental health, Instagram's just going to lose the arms race. And so it's pretty simple game theory. But when you then say, okay, if I don't do the three-second videos versus the 30-second videos, I'm going to lose to the guy that does the three-second videos. So when you play that out, this race for attention, starting in 2013, the reason that I came out, my version of Francis's story, is that we can predict the future. I can tell you exactly what society is going to look like if you let this race continue. Population-centric information warfare, weakening teenage mental health, shortening attention spans, beautification filters, unrealistic standards of beauty for teenagers, uh, more polarizing extreme content, more conspiracy theories. These are all predictable phrases that describe a future that if you allow this to continue, I can tell you exactly what the world's going to look like. And part of the reason we're all here today is to not just talk about those problems. We want to solve them. Because we know that this leads to a total dystopian catastrophe novel that unfortunately is playing out uh, true every day.
9: And I want to I want to unpack that a little bit. Like we 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 we've heard people say things like they're intentionally designing these systems for anger. They're intentionally designing them for division. One of the things that I was really struck by when I went to Facebook was how kind and conscientious the people were that worked there. You know, the kind of people who work at social media companies are people who value connection, right? They're not you know shadowy figures. But what Tristan's talking about here about the market incentives, the fact that these are private companies that we are asking to run critical public infrastructure in a completely untransparent way. We're asking them to maintain public safety, to maintain national security when those are cost centers, they're not profit centers. And so you end up in a situation where they may want to do better, but because they have to meet these market incentives each year, it's hard for them to get there. So so I guess the question I have for you, Tristan, is like, what conversation should we be having then? So
7: in preparation for answering that question, I think one thing we have to notice is that uh, per the E.O. Wilson quote that we always go back to, that the fundamental problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions and brains, medieval institutions, and accelerating godlike technology. And I repeat it thousands and thousands of times because of how true it is and how deep it is as an insight to then see how do we solve a problem? And part of the medieval institutions is that law always lags the new tech. We don't need a new conception of privacy until you have ubiquitous cameras that start getting rolled out in the 1900s. We don't need a right to be forgotten until new 21st century technology can remember you forever. So one of the problems is that we have technology moving so fast in the current regulatory environment is, okay, well, we have these existing moral philosophies of privacy and data protection and these are good these are we want these things but notice that the you know the breakdown of teenage mental health or extremism in ethiopia or this arms race for attention and engagement it's a, it's an adjacent and slightly different set of areas and we don't have laws or moral conceptions for those areas
9: and so often when we write laws we write them about externalities right that when we have the system operating in isolation there are incentives where these four what is an ex- what is an externality So an externality is when there is a cost. So let's say Facebook's going ahead. They're getting you to pay attention. They're getting you to click on ads. They get money for those ads. They're offloading onto you, though, the anxiety that's building in your heart, the child that took their own life, the political division at Thanksgiving.
7: Those don't show up on the balance sheet of Facebook. They don't have to deal with the Thanksgiving conversations that don't work anymore. And
9: the thing we want to emphasize is that there are really good, really simple, practical solutions that would reduce a lot of these problems. It's things like that escalator where you keep going for more and more extreme content. When we talk to pediatricians, when we talk to child psychologists, they say, kids get that this is happening. You know, they get that when they go in there, they feel more anxious. They get that it's making their eating disorder worse, but they're being forced to choose between their past and their future, right? They can give up their account, but they have to give up all their friends and connections. They have to give up all their past memories and kids aren't willing to give up their past for their future. You know, they should be allowed to reset the model anytime they want to. Any of you should be allowed to reset your model. You should have that right, even if it's going to make Facebook less money. It's things like saying, how do you put mindfulness in the sharing process? Do you require people to click a link before you share it? Or things as simple as what level of hyper virality do we want to endorse? You know, when something gets beyond friends of friends, imagine a world where instead of having a little reshare button where you can keep spreading the misinformation, we said we value choice. We value intentionality. You can say whatever you want, but you have, once it gets beyond friend of friends you have to copy and paste if you want to spread it further. That change sounds pedantic. You're like, Francis, why are you asking me about colors on share boxes or share fingers? The reality is that simple change has the same impact on misinformation as the entire third-party fact-checking program, only no individual is now saying this is a good idea or a bad idea.
7: So let's actually break that down because this is a profound statement that... We were both, you said at first, it came out of Francis' disclosures to the Wall Street Journal, that in Facebook's own research, simply taking away the share button and having you say, I can still copy and paste the text manually and share it again, but adding that one piece of friction in where I have to share manually.
9: I have to intentionally do it.
7: I have to intentionally do it. Not
9: mindlessly.
7: We're talking about a tiny change. Something that a JavaScript engineer can spend a day and it's done. And that would be more effective than, I think you said in the documents, a billion dollars spent on content moderation and all the other sort of trust and safety I, I don't know
9: about all that, but the third-party fact-checking program, where they pay journalists to go out there and write articles and say, this link, this concept is no longer allowed on our platform.
7: So, So I think then that this gets to the point then. So why wouldn't a trivial change that an engineer could make in one day, why isn't that happening?
9: So this comes back to this question around externalities and incentives. The reason why we have to push for things like platform transparency, right? So the PATA Act, Platform of Transparency and Accountability Act, it would allow us to see inside those companies. You know, what would it look like in terms of what people would be willing to stand up and demand if they could see for themselves that data instead of just taking my word for it or looking at the documents that I brought out?
7: So the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act or PATA, has not yet been introduced to Congress, but it's a bill with bipartisan support that obliges tech companies like Facebook to open their data to researchers so that we can actually study the effects of these platforms in a meaningful way. The bill came about in direct response to disclosures from Francis and other social media whistleblowers. We don't want to live in a world where we have to wait for the next Francis Haugen, or the next whistleblower, to know what's going on inside these platforms.
9: We we have to have the ability to have those countervailing incentives because otherwise the profit motive will just keep pushing away from these really simple, sensible changes. And the great irony, and I've had to repeat this in every interview since then, one of the core parts of my testimony was the idea that when we focus on content moderation, solving these problems after the fact, it doesn't just distract us from real solutions. It leaves behind everyone who doesn't speak one of the 20 biggest languages in the world. And that's what causes that ethnic violence that I talked about in the beginning.
8: So Danielle, at the risk of of asking you to like, explain all of your career standing on one foot, I do think maybe you could play us out with a list of those values that you want us to center because i think you know we've talked about uh, revenge porn and and violence and i i think that maybe it would be useful going forward and thinking about if you and i can agree that the court is not going to radically rewrite section 230 and that they probably want this case to go away <laughs> but if we can agree that this was not the day to do what the court played at doing this week. What are the values we should be centering as we think about chat GPT and AI and all the ways in which
13: technology is changing at lightning speeds? Yeah, I mean, these technologies, these tools and services are indispensable to our lives. So we all should have a meaningful chance to use them. And at the same time, so use them for free expression and sexual expression, in all the ways that we want to make the most of our lives and work and, you know, fall in love, meet people, network, you know, create opportunities for democratic engagement. We want to do all those things. And at the same time, those tools can be weaponized against us. All the while that we are doing things that are really important to our our careers and our ability to engage with other people and to love, those tools are engaging in persistent and continuous indiscriminate surveillance of our intimate lives. And in doing that, you know, all the otherwise we use these tools, we're not thinking that when we use our Amazon Echo, that it's recording and storing in the cloud, and then potentially leaking our private conversations in our kitchens. And we're not thinking as we use our period tracking apps and our dating apps, uh, we're searching adult videos on Pornhub, we are using our search engine, right? Which is it's the key to our soul, you know, what we're searching and what we're thinking and what we're browsing. We're not thinking that all of that information is being used, shared, stored, sold, and exploited against us in ways that have implications for our life insurance premiums, the jobs that we do or don't get. And so the values that I want us to center and think about is we're using these all these platforms in ways that are so pro-social. And at the same time, We are the object, we're being turned into objects and manipulated and exploited. And I want us to think about how important the privacy around our intimate life is, right, around our bodies, our health, our sexual orientation, our sexual activities, our close relationships, that the privacy that we afford, that we want, that we expect that we deserve, right, as we use these tools and services in the bedroom, I'm seeing my phone, it goes everywhere I go that preserving the privacy, protecting the privacy around the data around our intimate life is so important for us to be able to figure out who we are and develop our identities. It's so important for us to enjoy self-esteem and social esteem. So when a content platform encourages people to post non-consensual intimate imagery, right? The cost is that to so many people, more often women and sexual and gender minorities and racial minorities, the cost is that you're just a fragment. So when people see those images, you become just a body part, right? You're not, you're not subject, you're object, right? You lose your social esteem. And if we didn't have intimate privacy, like if we use these tools, so Dahlia, I'm going to call you on the phone, and we're going to use these tools and services to get to know each other and to form friendships. Right. And, and fall in love. Like, if we don't have that privacy, we can't form thick relationships. We need intimate privacy to be reciprocally vulnerable and to trust each other. And Charles Fried, I, I, I always quote him because it's the greatest quote in the world from 1970, his book, Anatomy of Values, where he said, privacy is the oxygen for love. And it is. And that's on the line. You know, you asked me, like, what are the values? what's on the line when we use these network tools and services, just to go back to our YouTube, right? What's on the line is our capacity for love, our capacity to communicate with privacy so we trust each other, right? What's on the line is our ability to get jobs and keep jobs, our ability to figure out who we are and express ourselves in ways that feel safe. Because privacy isn't a me, it's we, it's us. And so if we have in view as we think through legisl- even legislatively or even the, the common law courts, policymakers, as we think through what matters, the stakes are, when we're talking about online life and all these tools, the stakes are our intimate privacy. It is our civil rights and our liberties. And we often forget that when a site amplifies, recommends, makes money off of, uses our data to recommend non-consensual intimate imagery, the cost to the sexual expression an expression of of the privacy victims because they're leaving online life. They're shutting down their LinkedIn. They are not using YouTube. They are literally completely removing themselves from any online engagement and offline engagement. Their friends don't talk to them. You're vanquishing the speech opportunities for victims, and so we've got to have all of those values in mind. You know, as we think about all the kinds of policies, you know, content moderation is a beautiful thing. I have to say, having worked with companies for 12 years or more, 15, we have seen industry self-regulate in ways that 230 was meant to do, that we see companies responding to non-consensual intimate imagery. I wish we could touch those 9,500 sites that their raison d'etre is intimate image abuse, right? I can't. (laughs) But companies are engaging in that project of content moderation in ways that, protect victims so they can express themselves and so I guess I want those values on the table and that's the kind of thing those are the kinds of conversations that I've been having with lawmakers with judges with companies you know with all of us so that we have them in view as we make these decisions
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the BBC introducing and warning of the future of ChatGPT. Your undivided attention looked more philosophically at the potential of a world in which people form synthetic relationships with AI. Start Here from Al Jazeera looked into the potential and present dangers of deepfakes. CBS Sunday Morning spoke with the tech leaders looking to create verifiable content credentials for authentic photos and videos. Democracy Now! discussed the case currently in front of the Supreme Court addressing the interpretation of Section 230. Amicus discussed some potential minor tweaks to Section 230 that we may need for a new era. The Wall Street Journal looked into the potential of the so-called Web 3.0 based on blockchain technology. Your Undivided Attention discussed the ongoing need to regulate social media to fit human values, and Amicus laid out a set of values that protect privacy rights by understanding them as a fundamental human need. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Your Undivided Attention telling a bit of the backstory of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT.
5: Starting in 2017, OpenAI discovered this incredibly surprising thing, which is they trained a neural net to predict the next character of product reviews on Amazon. And the insight is that in order to do something as seemingly simple as predict the next character, the AI, to get really good at that, has to start inferring things about the human
0: and Today Explained looked into the dispute between TikTok and those in the U.S. who would ban the app outright. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from
16: you. Hey Jay, this is Pat from Chicago, and I just listened to the most recent episode on kind of the ideology and even more overarching life philosophy of indigeneity or rediscovering our indigenous place in the world. And it just got me thinking about so many different things about our way forward as a world that is deeply broken by capitalism and racism and all the unjust structures one of the questions that it got me to ask was what does it mean for a urban white person like me who doesn't have direct ties to an indigenous culture to discover rediscover create or come together to develop a sense of place and community without a a clear cultural antecedent to reconnect to without turning into kind of a, which of course I reject, like a nativist and tribal white identity, which seems to be so ascendant in the US these days, especially in ex-urban and rural places. It's like you can see the our partisan divide right there in our geography. And I think finding ways to connect maybe almost urban and rural, white americans or urban and rural black and white people brown people across those divides could be part of this solution but i struggle to think about what that specifically looks like but thank you for this awesome episode and keep up the good work
0: thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleftcom Thanks to Pat for his message that we just heard. There was a lot going on there, which I think is perfectly normal when tackling a big new concept like was laid out in the most recent episode about re-indigenous But I think that Pat is actually getting right to the core of the question. For a little bit of background, I started thinking about these ideas almost five years ago when I first heard about the cultural renaissance in Hawaii. And my reaction wasn't just happiness for them but was also sort of an awareness of something that was missing for me. I had a bit of an existential crisis realizing that having descended from the other side of the colonialism line, I simply couldn't do what the Hawaiians had done. I mean, rekindling a connection to my cultural heritage wouldn't reap the same rewards because— I wouldn't be able to help but run into a history of exploitation, racism, colonialism at a bare minimum. So that's not something I'm looking to bring back, right? So that leaves me feeling kind of stuck. I I think that knowing where one comes from is as deep of a human need as any. And the need to feel proud of our history is one of the strongest mechanisms by which oppression is perpetuated through the ages. So people like me who You know, I'm trying to refuse to knowingly perpetuate oppression. You know, we end up being sort of cut off from having pride in our history, which is a form of alienation, which is one of the key concepts that I was addressing in that episode. And then on top of that, I think that there's a more widespread form of alienation that permeates most of the dominant culture because everyone, to some degree or another, feels a bit disconnected from nature, even though our bodies still respond incredibly well to being in nature. I mean, going for a walk in the woods is literally good for our health because of the contact with nature, but most of us live in such a way that we are cut off from that experience most of the time. You know, we, we vacation into nature, but we generally don't live with nature on a regular basis. So those are the reasons that people may gravitate towards the concept of indigenization, but then be left wondering what the hell that actually means. And Pat in particular is asking about people like us who don't have a direct or recent connection to an indigenous past. What does it mean for us to attempt to connect with an indigenous worldview? My short answer is I don't know, but I'm hoping to find out. Uh, My longer answer is that I think it's relatively easy to address the concerns that Pat brought up by knowing what not to do and keeping those values central in our minds. So, you know, learning from a group of people doesn't need to devolve into cultural appropriation nor a sort of emulated tribalism. The more important aspect of what needs to be learned or relearned is the human values and actions that help maintain a healthy relationship with land and the environment. Indigenous peoples around the world manage to have very different cultures from one another, but often very similar values, particularly related to the environment. So it's possible to learn the underlying values and understand the local needs of the land without having to adopt an entire culture along with it. And as for tribalism, we already have a really solid foundation of anti-racist multicultural values to draw on on that topic. I mean, one key aspect of the story of the Gal-Gale community in Scotland highlighted in the previous episode was the origin of the name Gal referring to the outsider and Gale referring to the heartland people, the values at the core of that community was to be open to the outsider while at the same time attempting to reconnect with past cultural heritage. So it was explicitly a non-tribal, non-exclusive form of re-indigenization they were striving for. So anyone in that same mindset should try to emulate that value. But Just a reminder that I'm no expert and need to do a lot of learning right alongside you. This is still a burgeoning movement, so there's a lot still to learn, a lot to work out, but it seems clear to me that it's a movement that's headed in the right direction. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or you can now send us a text through standard SMS. Find us on WhatsApp or the Signal Messaging app, all with the same number, 202 999 3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the Transcriptionist Trio, Ken. Brian and Lewindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and a bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can continue the discussion by joining our Discord community. A link to join is in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.